It's that time again. Theology in the Streets podcast where no topic goes untouched. Yo, make sure you subscribe, make sure you like, make sure you share these episodes whenever you listen, amen? Yo, it's your boy, late to the game, Pastor Lou. And I got a cross from me. You got your boy, Kirk Classic, back in the building, baby. Hot on the mic. It's been a minute, it's been a minute, baby. Hot on the mic, hot on the mic. Yes, sir, yes, sir, we back, baby. Yo, I got on my left right next to me. Yo, back from the ashes, the prodigal sons, your boy Big Zeke, coming back at you one more game. Big Zeke, Big Zeke, and filling in, filling in for Dawn Dottas, who's out with a little cold, don't know if it's COVID, but, you know, shout out to Dawn Dottas, hope you feel better, bro. Who we got? Chino Ching the Barber, yeah. Big Ching the Barbers, wow. need a cut. He got that special for you. Oh, my bad. your boy. <laughs> boy is a magician with up. the blade. Yo, man. Uh, and we also have Dave in the cut, Jones, who's working the board that's with us, uh, doing his thing. He's in the cut right now. Um, but let's keep, let's keep it grinding here, man. We on our last episode of our series, Crime and Consequences. It's for the youth. It's for the youth. It's for the youth. These two youths. <laughs> but, um, uh, no, we've had some good episodes, man, and um, they've been a blessing and a half. Um, some real stories, uh, real life is what's going on every day, um, you know, and, and the brothers that have been on, they've been a blessing. And today we're going to finish it off with another story from a dear friend of mine, a big brother to me, a uh, brother from another mother. Um, we have with us Daniel Lopez. Introduce yourself, Danny. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Danny, Big D. Is in the house. D in the house. <laughs> Big D in the house. So, so uh, we're going to get into his story. Um, just to kind of give you a little background, Danny did some federal prison time, um, and we want to go into it from an aspect of how everything broke off uh, from what he was doing to eventually how the police got involved to speaking to detectives, speaking to his lawyer. Uh, trying to figure out the game per se, uh, and then you know actually going and doing some federal prison time. Um, so let's jump into it, Danny. Uh, tell us, man, what were you doing before you got caught up with law enforcement? Like, how did it get to the point where you did get caught up with the law enforcement? Okay, I mean, I think we need to start with a little background. Go ahead. And um, you know, my story, of course. Uh, you know, I'm born and raised in Rochester, New York. Um, grew up on the east side, and um, and I and I want to say this to be in particular and specific to, you know, it's going to go down the line. Um, you know, I was raised in, in a home with a mother and a father. You know, um, my mother married a man who raised me when I was about three, four years old, and he became my father. So I refer to him as my father. My biological is still in my life, so he's still also around. But I, I grew up in a, in a good home. I grew up in a Christian home. You know what I'm saying? Um, and I say that because, uh, you know, I know what, what you guys have been talking about, this crime and punishment series. And, and anyone could get snagged up into this, this life, you know, the life that I once lived. And, you know, I want to say that even though I grew up in a good home, 
our home physically wasn't a bad neighborhood. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So <laughs> it wasn't, you know, say right outside the door, although we had structure value in the home, you know, there was a lot of temptation right outside the door. So, you know, I mean, I, you know, I just grew up like anybody else. You know, we grew up in the same kind of like atmosphere, you know, we, we went to church and, you know, my, my, my parents were God-fearing, you know, so I understood the values of Christianity. So, but, you know, as I got older, you know, the temptation was there, you know. I know you mentioned, Zeke, that you was a prodigal son. My mom used to call me the prodigal son all the time because <laughs> <laughs> she said you left it. But, um, you know, it started small. It started off in like the late, the late 90s, you know, uh, really kind of just like doing a lot of partying, you know, kind of chasing that nightlife and started off with just, you know, smoking weed and drinking and, you know, a lot of that ratchet lifestyle, you know, that definitely wasn't honoring my parents. But I just, I just went down that path, man. And one thing led to the next and what started off as, you know, trying to support a, a weed habit turned into, you know, bigger things. And that's how I got tied into it. I mean, I, I, like in the late '90s and early 2000s, you know, I just I just came across you know some connections and I started with you know just selling you know drugs you know, um, and you know next thing you know you're in the game and it's like it just you know you become you just come numb to it you know and yeah. and for a while there for about for about a good five to six years that that's what my life was you know I, I was into growing weed and dabbling into other things other drugs and I got some connections from uh from other places outside of the state and it just became a thing where it just became you know you make money fast and you spend it fast and it was fun at the time you know it, it, it really was you know you got to do what you want you didn't have to clock in a punch or a job or anything like that and you just you know you just you come addicted to that and as fast as the money comes is as fast as the money goes hmm. so so what were you pushing like like I mean, um it was mostly weed and um <laughs> you know I also got into some other drugs uh there was some coke you know it, yeah. it came it came it, you know I learned a couple tricks on how to turn this into that and no, but I wasn't really out in the streets. I wasn't that type yeah, it wasn't of hustler. Like a black type. Nah, I wasn't. Yeah. I wasn't that type of hustler. I was kind of low money. You know, it was. Reg- I wasn't trying to. I wasn't flashy. I wasn't trying to be out there. I I knew enough not yeah. to. You know, I took my. I, I, I dipped in there a little bit, but I didn't go all in. I wasn't mm-hmm. on any corners. I wasn't running any spots trap like that. Trap houses. Mm-hmm. No, no, it wasn't that serious. And you know what? The thing I think about it now, like I thought that I could get away with this because of that. Mm-hmm. Thought I was smarter than this. Than, than the system, the legal system. Hmm. All right. So, so, when was it that the the, the Fed? Now, who who raided? Was it local police? Was it federal police? Who raided your house? Where were you living at? Because you had an interesting like little spot when all this broke out. Mm-hmm. You were in the cut, cut. I mean, yeah. Uh, where you lived at was was just it was kind of like not isolated, but it was it was hidden. Yeah. So I'll say this, in November of 2005, I was in my house, I had a house that was in the cut, like you said. It was this spot in the Rondecoit that I would have to take you there to show you it, but it was off the grid. 
it, it was really a, a hidden place and you know friends would come over and we'd hang out but it wasn't was it like again I wasn't you know not that many people knew where I was at so about six o'clock in the morning like I don't know y'all remember iced tea police at my door I heard a bang at my door and I'm just like I, I was in the second floor and I looked out my window and I peeked out the window and I saw some some somebody I saw someone coming out of a car and walking towards the front of my house and it and I thought it was a friend of mine and this friend had a tendency to come up you know he he used drugs and he I mean he was a friend though but he he was a night he used to break night he used to say that and once in a while he'd come by my house like hey what you doing hey want to hang out this and that and I thought it was him, so I just tried to ignore it because I was dead tired and sleeping. <laughs> I, he'll go away. And then this banging just wouldn't go away. Bam, 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 bam. I'm like, Yo. and then I got mad. So I got out of my bed, and I went to the kitchen, the back window, and I went to open the door to yell at him. And as soon as I opened the door, it was the DEA. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the Alphabet Boys got mm-hmm. the FBI, the DEA, and the CIA. And they had a warrant for my arrest. They didn't have a search warrant. They had a warrant for my arrest, which is why they didn't kick in the door. I see. All right? So they were serving a search warrant. They had to identify me. Then they would take me into custody. These are all things that I found out after the fact, technicalities. But I remember sitting in that kitchen, and it was cold. It was November, and that floor was cold. And I was laying down, and it was on top of me. And I was just like, wow, this is how it's going to go down. And when I found out I was the DEA, I was just like, what? Because, again, you know, I did what I did, but I try to stay low-key. And I couldn't for the life of me wonder why would the DEA be coming after me. But that's exactly how it went down. All right, so uh, they, they, they come in. Now, they, they served you with an arrest warrant. Mm-hmm. Did they eventually search the house? So, again, these are all things. And I want to say this, too. Prior to then, I had not been in trouble with the law. You know what I'm saying? I think one time I got a, like a citation for smoking weed outside of Jay Z concert in Buffalo, stuff like that. But other than that, I never had. I had no criminal history, no misdemeanors, nothing like that. Um, so they have to secure the area. Now, in securing the area, they went into my basement, and my basement had a little grill room, which was something that I used to do for myself for a little stash and yeah. and you know sell some stuff so here and there. Weed. Yeah. Okay. A small, a small thing, but yeah. But so once they saw that, that gave them probable cause to search the rest of the premise. Okay. So they call in to the judge. He signs off, and they search out. But that's that's it. I mean, they came up with some equipment, you know, some scales and stuff like that, you know. But other than that, I I I, I wasn't into guns uh, to this day. You know what I'm saying? I, I didn't carry guns. I, I wasn't that. So it was really they got the system growing, and they got you know a scale, a grinder, some stuff like that, some paraphernalia. But that's all it was. Yeah. Um, so then from there, they took me downtown to the Fed building. And the whole entire time, again, I'm just in my mind is racing. I'm like, man, what is going on here? Like, I always thought that if I got busted, you know, it'd be some local state or whatever. If it came down to that and, you know, I try to keep it clean and whatever and whatnot. But anyways, I mean, they put me in a room and I was in there for hours. They just put me in the room, closed the door, and that was it. I didn't have contact with nobody. I'm just sitting there, my mind's racing. I'm trying to put the pieces together like and how, what's going on here? What's going on? Like, I was like, I mean, I never sold to anybody that I didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> you feel what I'm saying? It wasn't like, oh, that one dude that I met after a bar one night that wanted this, and next thing you know, here they come. That's him. No, it wasn't like that. So 
you know, long story short, finally the door opens up and this detective comes in, a DA agent, I want to say a detective, an agent comes in, and he was like, all right, this is what we know. We know this, 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 and that, and that, blah, 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 blah. And the things that he said immediately, I knew what was going down. Mm-hmm. He said specific things. Now, he was coming in there to try to tell me, you know, to try to scare me, like, oh, we got everything about you. What's up? Because immediately they sit there and say, are you going to talk to us or what are you going to do? Once he laid all his cards out in front of me, you know, my, my initial response is, you know, I want to speak to a lawyer. Mm-hmm. So then that's what happened. Um, and then from there on that, I could kind of put the pieces together. Like, where did this heat come from? From there, they took me down to a holding cell, and in the holding cell were my codies. And then right then there, I knew exactly what was going on. So the codies is co-defendants, right? Yes. So what had happened was eventually um, I got charged with conspiracy to possess uh, cocaine and marijuana. And at that time, I was facing a minimum of five years. Okay. And what was the max? Um... The the the, the 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 feds have minimum mandatory guidelines, so it's okay. like five years. So you just do that straight up, I you see. know, and then there'll be like probation after that. Um, so with the feds, they have these sentencing guidelines. Back then, again, this is all stuff that I learned after the fact because again, I wasn't familiar with the criminal justice system like that. Um, so that was the first. That was a charge. I mean, and then I came up in front of the judge, and and believe it or not, they. They released me on my own recognizance. I didn't even have to post bail or anything. It was just like, wow. okay, which was funny to me. I'm like, and then there's these news stories, and it was crazy. Like, there's just all this hoopla and everything, and I'm like, it still don't seem right. Like, what is it that the federal government's going to invest all this money into for just my little self? But, again, there's a reason for this that we're talking today, and what I want to say, again, is if you think that you can get away with something, crime and punishment, it's always done in the dark, it's going to come to the light no matter what. Mm, that's a fact. Okay? So I kind of put the pieces together, and just to kind of generalize what was going on was I was, I, was, I was messing with some cats that lived in Wayne County, okay, or that were from Wayne County but were living in Monroe County. They did most of their dirt in Wayne County. They caught an investigation in Wayne County, but these cats were living in Monroe County. What had happened was the Monroe County Sheriff's Department did have no jurisdiction in Monroe. So they wanted to open this investigation. They needed cooperation from the county. So they went to the state. For whatever reason, the state didn't want to pick up the case. So the only way they can have jurisdiction to, to, to have an inve- open investigation between two counties was to go to the feds. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, the feds were like, sure, we'll take that case. So that's how I got wrapped up into a conspiracy to distribute cocaine and marijuana. Okay. So, all right, any questions before we, you know, Daniel, let's keep it real. You know you had keys, bro. <laughs> Push away. I see you in the Man. truck. You was driving. Audi. Yo. The alphabet squad. <laughs> Yo. The only keys I had were the keys to the truck. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, listen, listen. There was, I'm not going to, you know, there it was more than just marijuana. Yeah. I'll say that for sure. But, I mean... This is the thing. When it comes uh, to the drug game, you know, and it depends on how you look at it. It's our perspective. You know, if you look at it from a narco's point of view, there's ones that either use forklifts and airplanes and submarines, <laughs> and then the rest of y'all just chump change nickel and dime cats on the court trying to make, a, a, you know, a buck here and there. So, no, I mean, it was, it was, I didn't, I mean, it did end up being something serious. Right, so, but. so when you started to figure out, like, 
that they were linking you to these dudes in Wayne County. Mm-hmm. What was your initial thoughts? Like, were you connected with them, or were they just acquaintances? What was going on? I mean, they started off as acquaintances, but, yeah, we definitely was connected. Okay. Um, there was a couple of brothers um, that were doing their own things together but separately. You know what I'm saying? One of them was, uh, was bringing in some serious weight in marijuana from Canada and distributing it, and then the other one was... You know, again, I would say a small-town hustler. But, you know, again, in a small town like that, well, in Wayne County, it's a bunch of small towns, a lot of drug use, and, and everybody knows everybody's business. So you can get the heat real quick over there. And that's what they got. They got that heat. So, so, so okay, so now you know, I mean, you first get that, that the glimmer of all these faces. When you sit down with, with your lawyer, um, okay, did you hire a lawyer or did they appoint you a lawyer? How did that work? I was appointed a lawyer, um, federal, uh, you know, lawyer, whatever you want to call it. You know. So he sat down with me initially, and he was like, and we just started talking, and he gave me this kind of this little hope. He's like, man, this ain't no big deal. This is nothing. You know what I'm saying? I've seen these cases a thousand times. We'll, you know what I'm saying? We'll see what they got to offer, and then we'll go from there. So what I did know, too, was that because I was so discreet in how I moved around, the connection with them was just a one-way street. They didn't know much about me, these cats from Wayne County. You know what I'm saying? I didn't grow up with these guys. These weren't my, this wasn't my, my people's. These were acquaintances that I met through friends, and I hadn't known for a little bit. I didn't really know, know them. But I knew enough about them that they partied and that they got down like that. So it started and ended with me. See what I'm saying? Wait, okay, explain that. What do you mean it started and ended with you? What do you mean by that? The the case was originally for them. They brought me into the conspiracy. Okay. But they had no idea about my other life. My real my regular life. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So they had no idea what I did or who I talked to or who I hung out with or anything. So so these guys were just throwing you in there. Oh yeah. They snitched them out. They snitched them out. Yeah. Now, how, who, how many other people did they snitch at? They had an informant that was working for them. He saw me come to, he was at the house one night when I went to go visit one of the cats. So he identified me. Um, this case, by the way, was also a wiretap. Now, I don't know if y'all remember them Nextel two-way joints. Again, me thinking I'm, we slick. We always do stuff on the walkie-talkie thinking yeah, that that's a – But the, there's no – you don't say the federal government or any law enforcement that way. They, you know, it's a cat-and-mouse game, but – you know, you're not getting away with anything. You know what I'm saying? It all comes to light in an investigation. So I do remember one day going to his house, and I was I was dropping him off some stuff. And then as soon as I left, I got pulled over by a city cop. Like as soon as I left, like within a block. And he came, and he says, oh, no, your license plate was no. Okay, just want to make sure. Let me see your ID. And I gave it to him. And I was nervous. So I'm like, you know, what's this? You know. And then he says, oh, no, you're all right, and just let me go. Hmm. So, so at that time, I hit homeboy up on the two-way. I'm like, yo, I just got pulled over coming out of your house. He's like, oh, shit. Good. Oh, I'm sorry. Man. He goes, uh, man, good thing you didn't uh, get, pull, uh, get pulled over before you came over here. Now, he's saying that in the two-way. And, that, and I know it's because I, I heard that they, you know, I'll get into that later. But you get, you get all the evidence before you go to court or trial. So I actually heard the two-way conversation between us. And what that city cop was doing was identifying me. So they were watching, watching us. So, I mean, again, these are all things that I'm learning after the fact. Okay, so, so you sit with your lawyer, and he's like, yeah, this is nothing. Mm-hmm. Okay, 
that, that gives you a little bit of hope, but mm-hmm. really emotionally, what were you thinking? What were you feeling? Well, I mean, I knew right then and there that it was over in terms of my criminal life. Because I always kind of knew that. I was like, you know, I'm going to do this. If I get caught, I'm not going to mess with this no more. So at this point, it was damage control. I was trying to figure out, let's say, what's going on. Because, I mean, I had no idea how this criminal proceedings and everything was going to go. Again, I got wrapped up in a conspiracy. I saw all the players that were in that bullpen that were being held in, and a lot of them I didn't know, so I know they didn't know much about me. And really the only one who knew something was the one brother. Um, And at the end of the day, he didn't know much. So I was trying to play that, you know, they could only know so much. How can I, you know, work this? And, again, I knew I had no criminal history. I didn't get caught with a gun. By the way, that's another thing I want to tell you. Uh, With the feds, and actually, you know, if if you're – even if it's a legal weapon, if you get caught with drugs, that enhances your sentencing immediately. It's a big difference in terms of time. It's about minimum five years to 10 to 15 immediately just by having a gun. You see what I'm saying? And it keeps on enhancing depending on your strike. So if you have a criminal past, you know, it just goes deeper and deeper. So you got people in the feds that get caught. And then if it's crack cocaine, it's even worse. Now, a lot of that has changed recently, but back in the days, and I'm saying back in the days, this was 2005. I feel old, but it still was 16 years ago. There were still sentencing guidelines as how it used to be um, when those uh, crack cocaine, excuse me, in the 80s had came through. So, so the way, so I talked to my lawyer and I sit down and he tries to, he really plays it off like it's nothing. And I actually believed it. So I kind of roll with that. I'm like, okay, maybe I might, you know, come away with this unscathed, even though they were charging me with a conspiracy with that five years. Immediately after that, they gave uh, my lawyer a call me. Shortly after that, like a few months later, hey, they're offering, hey, I just want to let you know they offered us a plea deal. And I'm like, what is it? He's like, uh, if you plead guilty to conspiracy, co- conspiracy to possess marijuana with the intent to distribute, we'll, we'll give you a year and a day and probation. And he's looking at me like, Good, right? But I'm like, nah, man. <laughs> I'm not trying to go to jail at all. You know what I'm saying? Because in my mind, I was like, nah, I don't think this is deserving to go to jail. But that was just me being ignorant. You know what I'm saying? Well, so before the, your lawyer hits you up, though, right? Like, obviously, mm-hmm. everything hits the fan. Now you got family members are finding out. Your boys are finding out. What happens in that time frame before you, your lawyer hits you with the deal? Like, I mean... Who's there, like, for you, and who's not? Again, I had separated my business and pleasure with these people. So they brought me this heat, but they had no idea what this was going on. So I was safe to say, you know, my family, my friends, the ones that that I really rolled with, whether it was illegal or not, whether we were dealing and stuff or not. I mean, first of all, that all stopped then and there. So, But I had, you know, people that I knew that were in that game. Um and, you know, I rest assured, you know what I'm saying, they were good. You know, I got up with who I need to get up with and let them know, you know, this was something that I was going to deal with. I was going to take this, you know. So family-wise, um, it, you know, again, I told you, like I said earlier, you know, my son, my mother, my father raised me, you know, <laughs> to be better. So it, it was, there was a lot of shame, man. You know, I disappointed them. You know, I know I did. Um, and they had no idea. So it wasn't like, 
you know, denial, man, is serious. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? There's a lot of power behind that. So all those years that I was kind of like philandering in the streets and whatnot like that, you know, my parents, I want to believe that they knew, but they just didn't want to believe, you know, mm -hmm. that I was doing that. So to them, too, it was a big shock and surprise. To a lot, to some people. Yeah. yeah. It was. That is big, man. Because uh, no lie, I, I dabbled myself. Mm -hmm. I mean, like you said, anybody can get caught up in that. And it's, sometimes it's just the luck of the draw. But that was one thing that that stopped me was fam. To think mm -hmm. about the sh the shame, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I, I could definitely feel you on that, man. Yeah, yeah, no Especially you was born in Christian yeah. home. We talked mm -hmm. about that, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I want to come from uh, the point of view of before you got into this, what, what led you to even consider this as an option? You know what I'm saying for, you know, financial gain. What you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, what led you in into this life? That, that yeah, you I mean, I, I could I, I could see I I I could vividly see that trajectory. And it, it, again, it started off really small. It started off with me smoking weed and buying or getting my hands on a quarter an ounce to bag up, and that turned into a half ounce. But it was really to support just of you know it was a, it was laziness you know just. To support, to be able to still smoke weed without spending my own money. I mean, I always worked and I went to school. Don't get it twisted. Um, but it was just support a habit, really. You know, to yeah. just and it really just a, a smoking so weed. So it started habit. off as like this, just like a slow, just slow, funny. Weed. It's no big deal. This ain't nothing, you know. But you know, if you smoke weed, you hang out with a bunch of other people yeah. that smoke weed. So at and what point then did it change? What point did it did it turn from you supporting a habit to now? You thinking that you can make a quote unquote career out of it? I got a call from somebody, um, and they said, "Yo, come to I gotta holler at you." And at that time, again, it was just small, no, not nothing big. It wasn't even nothing I was leaning on. And they had a family member that had to connect, and he didn't know what to do with this weight. And when I say weight, he was like, "I got this weed. I can give you this for at this price." And I was like, how much are you talking about? He's like, as much as you want. And I'm like, what? A pound? To, what are you talking about? He goes, whatever you want, 5, 10, 20 pounds. Uh, whatever amount you could take is that. So it went just like that, from like this to bang. Yeah. So it went from a small-time responsibility to a potentially big-time responsibility. And I knew at that time what that how valuable that was because – you could be, you can aspire to be a drug dealer, but if you don't have a connection, you ain't gonna do nothing. So that's all it was. It was, it was I came across a good connect, and that connect changed everything. Yeah. And then once that opens up the doors, then you just go from there. Now, during during that point in time, was there? I'm pretty sure there probably was, but uh, can you describe moments where you felt like, yo, this is like too serious, like? What am I, you know what I mean? Like, have you started to second guess yourself? And, and Early on, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Early on, no. Um, there was times throughout that, that time where, I mean, again, I was so low-key with the stuff. I didn't even have any necessary close calls. You see what I'm saying? And it was, uh, which was, I was strategic with that. I, I try to practice a discipline to keep this. I, I purposely was, only dealt with a handful of people. I wasn't flashy. Um, I know Chin said I had the big boy, but <laughs> that was as much. Well, I remember, man. You took me to the crib. <laughs> no, 
<laughs> but even then, I wasn't about rims. You know, I did have a little jewelry, whatnot, but it wasn't that serious. You know, I, I like to take vacations and, you know, why everyone got to buy Jordans? Why you got to have nice sneakers, man? It's all about the ups, uh, the Jordans, right? That's, listen, that's, that was my main reason. If it, uh, hanging with the people, mm. you know, being cool, that power trip starts to come mm. in. And just being by Jordans and sitting at the house looking what you got with all the money, you start yeah. to feel like the man. But no lie, you know, there was times where, where it hit me. And be like, well, what am I doing with my life? And you that's it right there. And, and it's that's almost it. like you said, you got to deny the cross. At that moment, you know, you just got to take it. I, I used to take a deep breath and just shake my hand and be like, yo, whatever. They got the J's and, you know, again, denying the cross. You know the mean? truth. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. No, and, and that's kind of tobacco, what you were saying, Kurt. Um, you know, it, there were times where I did have those thoughts. Like, I, I knew this couldn't last forever. But, you know, it, it's the thing about that game is, and, and again, this is to, to the young kids out there, it, it, you know, you don't start. It doesn't happen overnight. You know, you, you start little, like I said, and then you wake up and the feds are at your door or whatever. And then it's not until you reflect and look back on it, you see all those little pieces. And, and then, you know, but, but like what, what you were saying, I, I did have a lot of moments throughout those years where, and then the thing is, hustling isn't guaranteed. You know, you have your goods and your bads. You know, you, you know, a drought comes over and you're not doing so good and that money isn't coming like it is. And then that's when you start to think like, man, this isn't sustainable. So, I mean, I always knew deep down inside that, you know, there was another life than yeah, this. Like, I was, like this had, wasn't me. It seemed like you had uh, a fence, if you will, of a line that you just, you wasn't going to cross. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But at the same time, slowly it seemed like that line kept getting moved for you. Yeah, <laughs> you know I agree. Saying? Absolutely. His, his line was, "If I get caught once, yeah, yeah, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> as long as I don't get caught, I'm but good." Before that yeah. happened, you know what I'm saying? It just like it, it seemed like it's just a slow progression of mm -hmm. it getting bigger and bigger. So imagine, you know, if you didn't get caught, mm -hmm. you know, who knows where? That's right. Where yeah, no, life no. may have ended up. You know what I'm saying? If you didn't get caught, so sometimes mm -hmm. the punishment is God's sovereignty. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Oh uh, yeah, uh, definitely of keeping us from, from us, because it seemed like you had convinced yourself that, man, if I keep low-key and if mm -hmm. I don't do this and if I don't do that, you know, it's kind of like some, let's be honest, some 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 terrible people that think they're Christians, mm -hmm. they convince themselves that, well, if I just go to church, if, if I just serve and I do this, and you know, then I'm good. I'm going to go to heaven. That, that's really? a great analogy, yes. Absolutely. You know what I'm saying? Like, are you, you yeah. sure? No, you fool yourself. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's the, and I knew better, though. That's the thing. The whole entire time I knew better. I mean, I, I, I have a great relationship with my, with my mom, you know, so I would go see her knowing that I was doing this. You know what I'm saying? So it was always, in the back of my mind, that was always the one thing, that this wasn't going to last for her and that, like, th this just wasn't going to be me for her. But you just go day out of day, you know. Uh, I got to get up this week. I got this. I have this person. Then people do kind of become dependent on you. You become dependent on them, and you keep these relationships, and, and you just keep knocking it out. Mm-hmm. All right, so so the the your lawyer car calls you, offers you the deal, and you're like, nah, I don't want that. Proceed from there. Like, what happens now? Now you you talking with your lawyer? Yeah. So, I you know because of what he was telling me before, then I was actually surprised that he told me that, and he was acting like this is good because he always told me, man, 
you know, I've seen big cases in this and this. There's no murder charge or violent crimes to this, you know, because a lot of times, you know, when you get into a conspiracy, if, if I get pulled into a conspiracy and me and you are that, but you're out here killing people, I can get caught up in. Rico law. Yeah, exactly. So then then it's now you're talking about real serious stuff. So because these dudes were just kind of, you know, I mean, they were doing things, too. They were moving things. But, you know, again, I was always on the assumption that, you know, this was, you know, I might get some probation, whatever. I, I honestly didn't think I was going to do any jail time. But even that was enough for me to be like, I'm done with this because I had been exposed. That's it. The story was out there. This made, this made the news. I mean, my parents knew about it. I mean, I was, that was one thing. That's one thing I can't understand to this day. Was that is that that recidivism? You know what I'm saying? These people that come out of prison and they just go back, 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 back. But I guess I, I guess I gotta credit that to you know my upbringing and whatnot and and what I knew before then. But so the lawyer, you know, they say, hey, this 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 year and a day, and I think it was like three years probation or something like that. And I was like, nah, I just I told him, I was like, I don't. I mean, I, probation, okay, cool, I'll sign off on that. But I'm not trying to do any jail time. Like that wasn't like I'm like nah. So this thing just dragged out, you know. And what I realized now that I didn't know then was the, the, the prosecutor that was working our case was this lady that was working here in Rochester. But she was up for a promotion in Philly. So eventually, as these cases just drag out, now mind you, during this whole time, people are copying, please, everyone's snitching, blah, 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 and they're sentencing. So you get a case. Eight people get arrested one by one. They're knocking them out. Oh, you're pleading to this, but snap, boom, boom. So they're closing those cases, and that's all they were concerned with at that point. She needs to close everything up before she went to Philly. So I was just dragging this along. Now, at the end of the day, it came down to three things. The You want to go to trial? If you think you're innocent, we could take this to trial. Now, you probably know or do not know what the federal conviction rate. They don't play. You take the feds to court, more than likely you're going to lose. It's like 90-plus percent. Like, they close. They don't play. You know, they have all these resources. You know what I'm saying? They just they have infinite money, infinite resources. You know, they're, they're, you're going to lose. And then if you if you lose that trial, what they call blowing trial, you're going to jail. Yeah, they're going to set the hammer, especially in the feds, right? And the feds are a little different than the state. You know, you're going to do that mandatory minimum. The, the, the good time is a little different. So you're doing the time. Um, so there was, there was, there was to take it a trial, which I would have been risking at least five years um, for the original charge. Cop to the um, the year and a day, or there's always an option, and that's work for the feds, which was never an option for me. You see what I'm saying? So they did try to entice me and try to say, well, you know, if you start telling us that, I mean, I remember the 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 prosecutor, the one I'm telling you that went to Philly. She was, you know, she. She told us, if you cooperate with us and you, you know, you give us information on this, this, and that, probation. That's it. Go walk away from all this. You'd be happy. That's what she said. But it wasn't happening. So, all right. You cop the plea. Yep. Um, a year and a day. A year and a day. And uh, where, do you, where did he take you? Where did he send you? So, I got sentenced. Um, this whole thing took about a year. I got sentenced December 2006. I was to report at the feds in January 2nd, 2007. So I show up to the federal building in Rochester, the U.S. Marshals take me to custody, and they put me in a holding pen, and they ship me from there to an immigration. One thing you learn about the feds is the feds have a thousand different prisons throughout the United States. 
I was under the assumption I was going to go to a camp, right? So you have these camps uh, throughout the state. You know, uh, right? There's one in, in Pennsylvania. It's about four hours away. And they're like mean, medium camps, you know, again. So I get this year in a day. Um, which, by the way, you know, it doesn't seem like a long time. I know you guys had a guest here. The last podcast, you asked someone did some serious time. But that year, one day in jail is like an eternity. So... You know, it wasn't the big, serious 5, 10, 15, 20 grand, but that one year changed everything for me. You know, it, it changed everything that I went in there with. I, I came out with nothing. You know what I'm saying? It's to start all over again. So uh, when you're in the Fed system, you know, they move you around and they try to figure out where they're going to place you. I'm thinking I'm going to go to a camp, and then I'm, I'm like, I go from this spot in Batavia. By the way, there's an immigration federal uh, spot prison in out in Batavia that you drive all the time when you go to Buffalo that a lot of people don't even know is there it's right off the throughway um, I went there I was there for about three weeks the first night was the worst night ever no sleep and then I got like food poisoning and, <laughs> yo it was just, I couldn't say oh man it was crazy but yeah it was real man it was a real life thing and then I'm trying to figure out you know like like the brother that was what was his name Ismail yeah Ismail you know you, you gotta find out real quick what the rules are, you know what I'm saying? And I knew people that did time, and I got some. But all of that, you know, when you're there, and you're there, and you're locked up, and you're with a bunch of criminals, it's a whole different culture. So um, I got shipped around from there, went to this space in uh, Ohio. They held me there for, like, another three weeks, waiting for me to get my permanent spot where I'm going to be. So eventually I got placed in uh, MDC Brooklyn, so Metropolitan Detention Center Brooklyn, which is a maximum prison. Um, so I went from thinking I'm going to a camp to going to a maximum prison. So MDC Brooklyn is a detention center for the feds. So it's like it's like a court, a county court jail, but it's a federal court jail. And who's placed in those prisons are people that are awaiting trial that have been federally charged in that jurisdiction. So you're looking at Brooklyn, mostly Brooklyn and Queens. Um people that are at the end of their bids. So you got a lot of people that did 20, 25 years, and they're about to get released into halfway homes. So they come there, and then from there they get released into the community. And then people like me that are doing a year, two years. And what they do is they use us to work the prison. See what I'm saying? But you're still locked in a maximum security prison with criminals that are doing white-collar crimes and criminals that don't kill people. So that's what makes it a little rough. Was that a 24-hour lockup? It's, yeah, it, there's a maximum. So movement, there, there's no outdoor movement. That, but now, once you go to that prison, uh, an inmate like me who has no priors and no violent offense, stuff like that, what they use me for is to work the prison. So I became uh, like the garbage detail, which means I'm able to move around. They, you know, I'm not a fly, I'm not a risk to try to run away. Um, I could go in between spots and, you know, basically you just work and become a, you know, janitorial services, clean up this and that, which, you know, this old building in Brooklyn was infested with rats and roaches and it was nasty. But again, you're locked up. I mean, and it's, it's a two-man cell. You're locked in. You you're count several times a day. There's no free movement. You know, it's, it's a maximum security prison. And there's hardcore criminals in there. I mean, you know, and this, again, this is Brooklyn, so you're talking about anywhere from local drug dealers to uh, Gambino stuff, you know what I'm saying? Straight up real mob stuff, mm -hmm. so. All right, so what was your mentals like, man, emotionally, you 
but like once was, you once you landed at Brooklyn, um, because it was I remember visiting. We went to go, I went to go visit you, and they had us. I found this to be strange. They didn't have just a regular go play sit down. And I could see you across the table. You know, it's not like state prison where you, you know they got a little room where you can go. They had everybody sitting side by side next to each other, and like, in the waiting room. Yeah, exactly, the waiting room. That's how we visited. Yeah, I do remember that. And, and so, and this is the thing. I'm like, if they're doing this, I can't even imagine what it's like inside. You know, um, so how did how did you being there just affect your mentals? I mean, it was the toughest time of my life, man. It was, it was, it was dark. It was dark because when you're locked in that cell at night, and again for the kids and the youth, and you can't go nowhere. If if you if you suffer from, and I didn't necessarily suffer from it, but if you suffer from claustrophobia, mm. if you don't like tight spaces, if you like to just once in a while just get up and just walk around and get fresh air, that's all taken away from you. So every night when it's locked up, you know, and then I remember being in that one night, and I was never like that. I tried to, I, I was never that claustrophobic. One night I got, I just wanted to just get out of there, and I couldn't. And that just, it just, it mentally, it breaks you down, knowing that you cannot go anywhere. Like these walls, they're not going to move. You're here. This is what it is. And, you know, you know, it's, it's the same old adage, you know, do the time and at the time do you. And you, you, you slowly start to learn how to deal with that. But mentally, it was tough. I was in a relationship at that time before, and that started to deteriorate really quick. And I had an OG that I met, and when I first got locked up, he's like, man, let me tell you something. Almost every single relationship that you might as well just be prepared that that's not going to happen. And so I, you know, and I took it for word, and I was like, okay. And so that started to fall apart, and then it was just like, it was rough, man. It was really rough. It was really, really, really rough in there. Yeah, that's... All right, so you, you do your year, right? You, mm-hmm. you do your time. Um, and you already said, yo, I'm done with the, with the game. Um, you get out. What, what happens now? I mean, you starting all over. What happens now? What was your mindset? I, I mean, from the get-go, I, I knew what the plan was. It was, it was immediately to, to – so when I knew that when I got released, I was going to be released to a halfway house. Um, I knew I was going to be on probation for a few years. And it was just, you know, I fell back into what I knew was right, and that was get a job. I mean, that was the first thing, get a job, disassociate myself from a lot of, you know, and I and I say this right now, there was a lot of friends of mine and people that I wrote with that were really good people, man, you know, but there was still in the in the game, and I, I, just, I just cut everything off, you know. And my friends and family, you know, my family that I knew, I had, a, I had some support when I got out, so I will say that. You know, my mom, my dad, you. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I remember you. Remember, remember the car. But oh, you might not man, know this, man. but yeah. that was the whip, son. <laughs> I had this little Buick Sabre that I always kept. It was like a little side whip, and, 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 and you, you held it down for me when I was yeah, there. He picked me up with this this, this, this Buick Sabre. Riding on air, bro. That thing was so smooth. <laughs> it was an old man car, but I was all about that. I, I did not care, man. And let me tell you something. When you're again, the jobs that I had to do when I was in there were nasty. You're talking about a building, you're talking about two buildings in Brooklyn that are rat infested. Yo, one time they called us up to do a special job and it was to clean, so these big, you know, the big, uh, 
the big compactors that do the garbage, right? So this is a prison, so there's garbage. People throwing garbage away every day, so they're throwing this garbage away and food and stuff. And when that tractor, that trailer used to pull that in to the dock, when they were dumping it, it had gotten so nasty and dirty that it had built this big, thick wall of just gooey and junk. Nasty, dirty stuff. So they had called us, and we had to get in these little suits, and it was like a bunch of us. And they gave us pickaxes and shovels, you know. I don't know, this is all secure, though, but they're watching us. They're like, you need to clean that out. And so it was like, all right. So we start hitting this, and there's just rats jumping out of it. It was, it was the nastiest, grossest thing you could ever do. And the smell and the stench. They ended up having a strip. When they strip us down to check us, whenever you come from a detail, you always got a strip search. They just said, just throw everything away, and we'll get you new stuff, because it was so nasty and stench. And... I mean, I never seen so many rats in my life. And this is New York City, you know what I'm saying? And it was, but but I say that to say that when I was there, and I think anybody that's locked up will tell you this. I don't care how much money you have, where you come from, anything you would give anything in this world, you would pay to just not be there and work at a McDonald's or any job. This doesn't matter. Like as anything but with this is gonna work. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> So that's the mentality that I had. I mean, I knew that when I was in. I was like, so I get, I'm just going to go to job. I knew. I said, I'm going to go straight to a temp agency, get the first job they offer me, and then just play it, play it clean. You know what I'm saying? Really, I just cleaned it up. I was just focused on being clean. That's all it was. Now, you had just a year and a day, right? Mm-hmm. Could you see yourself doing more time as far as, like, maybe doing some serious time, 10, 15, 20 years? How, how do you... Can you imagine how life might might be for you mentally and just where you would be even if you got out? Like, mm-hmm. Do you think that that prolonged time would, would change your perspective on life you know, over time? Yeah, it's funny because when that first, and I, I don't know if you remember I told you this, I told Pastor Lou, if I had to, face, if I had to do those five years, I don't think I could do it. I was thinking, man, Maybe I could sneak over to the Dominican Republic. <laughs> I, you know, I got fat in DR. Man, I was, I mean, it was, it was a fantasy. I mean, I would have not, but it came across my mind, like five years. And I want to say, you know, I was, you know, yeah, I wasn't married, but I wasn't married, and I didn't have any kids. You know what I'm saying? I wasn't a father at that time. You know, I could never imagine. I'm a father now, beautiful eight-year-old boy, of ever having to do something to compromise my freedom, and because that. You know, not seeing people lend there. Those, when you get those visits and you see those kids, yeah. if you're out there listening to this and you have kids, it's never, ever, ever, ever worth it under any circumstances. Yeah. But to have your children come visit you in prison, and I'm talking about the vulnerable young ones, yeah, yeah. the five, the six, the seven, who may not know what's going on, but when you see them and they're going to see you in that little side-by-side sitting waiting room, yeah. it's just... Never, never. So, I mean, when I, just to say what you're saying, you're, I hear what you're saying. So a prolonged period like that, five years, something like that, I mean, I'm a, I'm a survivor. I would have figured it out, you know what I'm saying? But, I mean, that would have been even more motivation not to, you know. I wasn't going to mess around after a year and a day, much less five years. But I think that the people that do serious time, and that's one of the things that I – I usually don't really speak my story that much because I know people that did serious time. I know yeah. people that did serious time for crimes they didn't even commit. Yeah. You know, and 20 that's years. What, mm. You know, because you, you talked about the recidivism rate. Yeah. Um, high, super it's, high. It's, it's super high. In the right? 80s, like 85%. And, and it's still high and even now. Yeah. Right? The people who get incarcerated and come back. Um, 
is could it be tied to the length of time? Like for you having a year, you know. I mean, obviously, if you do the, if you do a serious crime, we we understand. Yeah. You know, you, you, you got to pay the time. You got to do your punishment. We get that. But for things like, you know, maybe what you went through, other people who may not have had such, you know, much of a serious mm-hmm. crime, even though they committed it, um, but having such prolonged time mm-hmm. in conditions like that, do you think that that has an effect on absolutely on people when they get out? Absolutely. I spent, uh, you know, again, my time was about a, it was that the year and a day, and when I came out, as soon as I walked out, I was shaken, and. I had a cell phone and I grabbed it and I, I was shaking. I didn't. I forgot how to use a cell phone. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So acclimating back to the regular life is something that's physically, emotionally overwhelming. So I can't imagine someone that's five. So when I was in there, this was so this was 2007, 2008. I knew people that I met in MDC Brooklyn that were on their tail end of their you know 20 year sentence. So we're going back to the 80s, right? They don't know nothing. I mean, I knew what a cell phone was. You know, we kind of had the internet. Things were starting to pop off then, but they, they had no idea. So a person that's doing five, eight, ten years, to readjust to the regular life is a tremendous, tremendous thing to over to overcome. It's, it's no joke. And then if you don't have any support, if you don't have any family support, if if you don't have a plan, if you don't stick to it, if you don't have the discipline, that that's a that's yeah. That's just now, are, are, are there services while you're in prison that for someone like that mm-hmm. and I'm talking I'm being real like, mm-hmm. like real services where they're, they're really trying to help you like yo bro like you got a second chance at life let's let's help you to yeah. make sure you make the most of it is there things like that going on you always there's always going to be some type of service available for you okay but there's a disconnect um do people take advantage of it? Are they aware of it? Do they have to do their own part? No matter how much services is there, if you don't do your own part, it's really easy to get caught back up in the lifestyle. Um, so when I got out, you know, I, I, I already knew what my plan was. But for someone else who didn't have that support, who didn't have a history, because, I mean, I knew what it was like to work. I knew what it was like to go to school. You know what I'm saying? So I knew that that was the route. It was really clear for me. Got to work possibly go back to school and get it. Now, I'm a convicted felon, so there was that obstacle. But if someone who's been to jail and has a violent, or say for a gun, you know, that violence automatically takes them out of a lot of uh, opportunities when they get out. Um, but it, it's there has to be some sort of support that's genuine. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, I can show up to a services and take advantage of this or that. Um, but sometimes those services... You know, I mean, there, there's there's a lot of programs yeah. for anybody in this yeah. country, right? But do they necessarily work? Do they just fix an immediate problem? Like, okay, we're going to find you a place to stay. But what are we going to do after that? Yeah. You know, how, how, how deep it is? Uh, I, I don't know. I, could, I, I see why the recidivism rate is so high. Well, because that, that, you know, what I'm trying to get to is mm-hmm. what it seems like our, our, the American prison system is, is built around it's not really to rehabilitate, Mm-mm. but more just just to punish, right? So you got the punishment down. We got that. That's that's good. You know yeah. what I'm saying? No, they're good but, at that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But as far as like re- rehabilitation, and, and and I guess the question is: Is it the response? Is it the responsibility of the state, if you will, 
to help in that process, or is it solely yeah. on the individual? No, no, right. I mean, you would like to think so, right? Because they're putting you in, but I mean, you learn a lot about the the, the you know the, the phrase that comes out a lot, especially lately, is the prison industrial complex, right? Mm-hmm. So when I'm locked up, I'm doing a lot of reading. I'm really listening to these people that have done 5, 10, 15 years, doing a lot of knowledge, a lot of soul searching, um, and you learn about the system, right? Because it, it is a system, yeah. and there is there is money in it. There's power in it. Yeah. These are real things. So that system, does to me, doesn't seem like it's going to go away anytime soon. But you would think if the true essence of it was to rehabilitate, to avoid them coming back, then they'd be more money placed in that. But unfortunately, there's more money placed in the locking up part, yeah. in the punishment part. There doesn't seem like there's a lot of investment in the, the redemption of it. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? So, so, and there's, a, when I say money, a lot of money, yeah. Oh, yeah, right? Which is, that's the, what we always come back to is that, that root of evil, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Right, something me and you talked about, there's so much money to be made in America. Mm-hmm. Like, we used to talk about that when we were roommates back in the day, and, and, I, and, as Kurt is alluding to, I think the capitalism part of, of our nation has, they've tapped into a, a good, it's a good resource. Yeah, I mean, it is. It so. is. Because I remember I was doing a job. I was working for a company um, that was like, a, uh, what do you call it? Like a temp agency for construction workers. Mm-hmm. All right. And they sent me to this one job at the armory uh, for the army. And it was, uh, we were just, they were just building it. And so they, they were um, outfitting it with office furniture and all this other stuff here, right? And so I'm going in there, and we're building these cubicles and all this stuff here. And I look on the box, and it, it, it had um, some kind of corporation from Pennsylvania. And then I looked a little deeper, and it was a penitentiary. And I'm like, penitentiary? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Wait, what a penitentiary? A corporation? Like that, that, it just didn't add up. And yeah. then the, um, the, the vice president uh, came to see the work that we were doing and whatnot. And I heard him talking about, with another gentleman, he was talking about the prison system and how, yeah, man, we got these guys working for dirt cheap. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was that callous, man, that cold and callous. Yeah. Like, yeah, man, like, man, we built this furniture for nothing. And then they can go and sell it, man. And I'm just thinking to myself, that's when I woke up to, the 13th like, yo, Amendment. wait a minute, man. Yeah. Like, this is a business. Because I, I didn't know that at that time, I didn't know that prisons could be privately owned. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that's a conflict. I'm like, how do we not see this as an issue when a when when a man can own a prison? Mm-hmm. That hope, that yeah. is a conflict because now what that means is that's my business. Now, if you any good businessman, <laughs> I'm, I'm just putting two to two together, man. Yeah. I, I, you know, and I yeah. understand you do the crime, you need to pay the time. I get all of that, but there's there's something evil about when you allow a man. Mm-hmm. To have an invested interest in other men failing at life, and then because they failed, women, I get right? the game, right? And women, right? And, and so, but but then not only that, but you got to think about okay, any good businessman, he gonna market his business. He's gonna man, he ain't out here just sitting around just like okay, I'm gonna wait for it to come. He's thinking of strategies and ways to get that. So if my product is people. Now I gotta come up with ways and, and things. And that's a whole nother show, brother. That's a whole nother <laughs> show, son. The the prison, the, the yeah, the, the the school to prison pipeline, which you're talking about. So the prison that I went to real quick in uh, Youngstown, Ohio, was a, a CSA or CSA. It was a private prison. So the difference between that and a um, a state or federal sanction, a state uh, places, 
as soon as you go into these these private prisons, it's everything's cheap. So you have a CEO that if he was in the state, he'd be getting sixty thousand dollars a year, a pension, blah blah blah. Again, because we're talking about money here, you got someone they paying twelve dollars an hour <laughs> watching criminals. They're putting instead of two people in a cell, small cells, they're putting three people in the cells. So their interest is to get as many criminals in here as you want. They want you locking up everybody, and they don't care who it is. So they invest their money, they lobby, they try to get it. I mean, I mean, stories have come out. You can Google this any time, like you said, the story. And there is cahoots with the judges. I'm sentencing these kids. You're like, what's going on here? There's an interest to keep people locked up because yeah. it, it all, all ties into to money. The new modern-day slavery. Yeah. And that's the 13th Amendment. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You you have rights, but once you get locked up, you give that all away. You know, and that's where you get into the, they're going to, again, I was working as basically a, a, a maintenance person in the prison. If they had anybody else doing those jobs, especially in New York, it's a union. It's $25, $30, $40 exactly. an hour. Exactly. Over time, this and that, you get a break. No, I'm going to give this guy 20 cents uh, an hour. I think that's what I was making, like 20 cents an hour. Mm-hmm. And how much money does it save them? So, yeah, that, that is a, that's a real up thing. In there and, <laughs> <laughs> and they get paid for having me. Yeah. That, that's the other part that's crazy. Yeah, it's like $75,000 per inmate. It's just crazy. Crazy bonkers. Mm-hmm. All right, so before we close up, a couple things. Where are you at now, man? You, you, you had a plan. You, mm-hmm. you put your plan into action. What's going on? Okay, so, you know, I, I – like, again, I just played it straight. Got a temporary agency job working at a factory. From there, I got another job. And I just went I just, it just went on a roll. And then I just got a good job at, at Time Warner Cable. Um, you know, three years after I got out of prison, I, I, I got, became married. A couple years after that, I had a son. Um, and then one thing that I found about, and this is really important, because I was doing my research. That's another thing. You know, again, there are things that can help you yeah. overcome. Because now I'm a convicted felon, all right? And even though no matter what wasn't a violent or anything like that, you still got that felony. So mm-hmm. if you're trying to make it legit in life and you're trying to do the best for you and now my family, that, that's, you know, that's a stain. It doesn't go away. It ever goes away. Um, but there's something in New York State called a Relief for Certificate of Disabilities. And basically, you apply... Uh, to the New York State Department of uh, Probation. And basically all it is is saying, listen, I'm rehabilitated, meaning I've proven to the state that, yes, I did this crime, but I haven't gotten in trouble ever since. Um, It wasn't a violent crime. It wasn't a serious crime. And then what you do is you're awarded a certificate of disabilities, which allows you to um, basically if you apply for certain jobs that are government jobs, because we're talking about taxpayers' money now then they cannot hold your felony against you. Okay. They can't. It's a civil service law. Yeah. And once I found that out, and it took a long time to find that out, a lot of paperwork, a lot of denials and this and that, I realized, you know what? I can get a job with the, with the government by taking a civil service uh, exam. So that's what I did. I took a county civil service exam, and I did really well in it. And I was able to secure a job that's, you know, become a career job for me now. Yeah. And since then, I've, I've got my bachelor's degree and, you know, 
So I and I just never really looked back. That life was never an option because that life was never really a satisfying and happy place. Yeah, it's, it's a superficial thing, right? Like you were saying, you know, you're having fun, you're dressing nice, you're going out, you're traveling, you're doing all this, but at the end of the day, you know that this just ain't the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? There's no better feeling for anybody. Again, the kids out there, I don't care what job you're making. Waking up in the morning and going to work, all right, getting your paycheck and paying your own bills and building off of that foundation of just simple discipline and showing up to work, there's no better feeling than that. Not having to look over you. I mean, that feeling, though, I don't care what you was doing. You always had in the back of your feeling. You know, you're driving around. I mean, to this day, I mean, I haven't done anything in years. But when a cop pulls up behind me, <laughs> not only because of the lifestyle I live, but because of the you know my complexion. But it, it, it's all good. Complexion, you look, you, you the whitest Dominican in the eye. You got the whitest Dominican. I've seen it a long time. But I'm big, man. I got a bald head, so <laughs> trust me, man. I've been pulled over plenty of times for no reason at all. But you know that 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 feeling, being able to support my son and. And it's just, it's a great feeling, man. You can't, you cannot replace that. I mean, it's just nothing but it can be done. It can be done. You can do this. Now, I heard you real quick. I heard you say that your parents brought you up in the, in the Christian home. Yes. Um, now, since you got out, I, I haven't heard anything mm-hmm. in that aspect. So, what's up? Um, I, I will say this. Um, when I went into, into prison, um, I, I was leaning very heavily into my faith um, up until then, even when I was in there. But but I'll say this. While I was locked up, you know, my, my faith, it was shattered. It was shattered. It was shattered. It was broken into a lot of little pieces. Okay. And let's just say that those pieces still haven't been put back together. So, you know, I I've just kind of just... I get up, I go to work, I, I, I live a life of those certain values. Um, but, you know, that's... Now, is it, if I can dig a little bit... Go ahead, man. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> they know, I just, this is what I do. I know, I got you. Now, is, is, do you feel like it's because of what you went through and then maybe could it have been like people failing you during that time or, you know, whatever the case may be, what I'm trying to get to is, do you see this as, as an issue with the Lord or an issue with, with people, that may maybe even people who claim to be, you know, believers. Um, no, it's not. It's not an issue with people, um, because the people that, that you know, the, the the faithful servants of God, my parents, so they've, they've always been there for me. So I never have an issue with them, and I, I understand people. Generally, no matter who you are, you fall short. You know, you have, you know, the, there's bad. There's a little bit of bad everywhere. So it's it's not that. Um, it's just it's, it's just a personal thing with me. Yeah. So between but, you and God. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I know we, we talked before. Yeah. And I know even before you went to prison, uh, you were struggling, mm-hmm. struggling with your faith. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And uh. And I, I just I just told you a couple of minutes ago that's keeping it real because you you got to get down to the nitty gritty, mm-hmm. right? In order to start to pick back up, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And we all got to answer our own questions 
Lord got to speak to us individually. You mean, and I, I just pray that that comes into you, man. And I know you got Brother Lou right there. Mm-hmm. And Brother Lou had a big impact on me when I was coming into faith. Just got married and and already thinking of divorce. You know I mean he played a big part? So it's, it's late to the game. Yeah, man. absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, because it's it's serious, man. Like just listening to your story, I'm seeing I'm seeing the hand of God over. Yeah, amen. Straight up, man. I, I just listening to you, I'm like, bro, you. I don't see how you ain't. <laughs> you know, I appreciate. Like, no, no, I appreciate. Yeah, no, no, I I love it. I, love I see it. God's hand, right. man, and His protection, and just you know allowing you to go through. You know, we suffer because you know, like you said, you know, you're doing what you're doing. You was trying to be low key, but you know, God like stop. Yeah, listen, you keep know? it, keep it, keep it real. He, yeah, it could have went the other way around. Yeah, that's a, you. Okay. You could have been yes, selling, got bigger and bigger. That's what I'm saying. Head got it. So, got bigger man, than what it is. So this is. Sh- let me just, because I know th- Zeke, you got a question. Yeah. Uh, before before you get into that question, just to show you that I believe the hand of God has been. It's still on Danny too, because he. Listen, it's not just his mom who's been praying. There's been a lot of people praying for Danny. Mm-hmm. But after I became a believer, not too long after I became a Christian, I had a I had a dream. I'm not big on dreams and stuff like that. I had a dream that. I was living on the old, our old street, Dayton. Now, Danny used to live with us for a little bit on Dayton Street. Mm-hmm. And um, across the street was my boy, the twins. They lived there. But in the dream, I saw a bunch of feds raiding the house. And um, they put up blue tape. And for some reason, I knew the blue tape meant like Coke. Mm-hmm. Like they raiding this house for Coke. And who they brought out was him. Now, this is like years before. Yeah, yeah. The DEA's, uh, the, the, the feds raided this house. That's powerful. So this was like so impactful to me. Like I hadn't talked to Danny for a little bit. I was like, I hit him up. I was like, yo, man, what's going on, bro? You you still doing your dirt, whatever? He's like, nah, I'm not. I said, you still messing with any of that Coke stuff? He's like, nah, I'm not really doing it. I'm just messing around with the weed stuff. I was like, yo, man, I'm just sharing with you. I had this dream. I'm not saying, I don't know. It just seemed so real to me. And it impacted me so hard. I just needed to share it with you. I don't remember if you remember me sharing that with you. I do. So I shared it with him, and he was like, nah, I'm good. I'm going to keep it I'm gonna keep it low-key, which he was already doing. Yeah. I'm going to keep it low-key. I was like, yeah, just be careful out there, man. You know, be safe out there, blah, blah, blah. About a year and a half, two years mm-hmm. later, mm-hmm. that's exactly what happens. Yeah. Wow. So I, I, once again, I think the hand of God has been on your life um, looking out for you. And these are things that on this side of eternity – it's hard for us to fathom the love of God, the understanding and wisdom of God towards the people that are, are broken, um, who do not know him at times, who, who may be rebellious. And I'm not saying that's you, that, that, but just in general, the revelation of God's love towards us is no, there's nothing you can compare it on this side of the world. The only thing you can come close to is a parent child relationship that's the closest thing you could come to but even that it is so much more god's love towards us but i know zeke got something for you um yeah i just wanted to kind of see if you could touch on the timeline of like how old were you when you first started smoking weed to the point where you wanted to grow as a sports habit to where you got that heavy weight mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like how slippery of a slope it could be. Like you think you 
Um, I, when I really started smoking weed on a regular basis was probably, you know, after high school. When I got back, I went away. Uh, I was in the Army for a little bit in the reserves. And when I got back home, um, that was like my summer. So it was like the summer of 93. Um, but it really started to become a thing when I was starting to break down stuff. Um, I ended up going back to college. And that's when the party atmosphere really kicked up. And with the party, there's drugs. And the smoking really picked up around those years. So for a few years when I was in college, it was like 95, 96, 97. And then, you know, that's when I kind of just got lost and just wasn't really focused on anything specific. And that's when the temptation really became a real thing. So you're talking about the end of 98, 99, dibbling, dabbling, you know, small-time stuff, nothing serious. But still, you know, the thing was, too, I was – I may have not been doing big things then, but I was – uh, surrounded by users, yeah. you know, people that partied and used just as well. So it was on two. It was the summer of two thousand. Two thousand one was when I met that connect, and it had been building up until then. So when I got that connect, that's when you know I was ready to go because I knew exactly who to go with to distribute this thing to get rid of this, this this stuff. So. You know, that's the timeline, and then from then until 2005, you know, I had a good, good four or five year run. Yeah. Two. And I mean, I was, you know, I was like, you know, <laughs> I was a little, I was grown at that time, to be honest, you know what I'm saying? But again, I wasn't tied down with any kids. I, I don't know what had happened. I, I'd like to believe that I wouldn't have taken those risks if I had a child, but, you know, who knows? Yeah. Yeah. All right, man. Yo, Big Dap, man. Appreciate you coming <laughs> on here, sharing your story, being yeah, no transparent. Doubt, no uh, transparent. I know it's not easy for people sometimes to come up and share their their lives. Um, so, man, thanks again, and you know, we're praying for you, man. Seriously. Thank you, know, you, thank, you thank you, thank you. Appreciate it. Um, Task Nation, keep riding. Task Crew gonna keep driving. We out. See you.